Hello and welcome to the newest episode of the Minority of One podcast. Roe v. Wade has been reversed. As you might guess, I am horrified by this decision. I've certainly been afraid that it was coming for the last few years, but I didn't want to believe it. Nobody has a right to impose their personal view about abortion on a person who is trying to decide whether or not to end a pregnancy. The decision, at least up to 24 weeks, needs to be left between the pregnant person and their doctor. To interfere with that imposes a burden that will always fall disproportionately on women rather than men. It requires a massive amount of intrusion into women's bodily autonomy and general privacy, and it is disturbingly similar to, and sometimes very hard to even differentiate, from other traditional attempts to control women's lives. I could talk about how people who usually say the Founding Fathers wanted this, therefore we should do it, have largely thrown this out the window at the worst possible time, since the movement to ban first trimester abortions in the U.S. didn't make much headway until the 1800s, with Ben Franklin even including how-to info about performing abortions. I could talk about the hypocrisy of opposing abortion, while also opposing homosexuality and birth control, since, of course, both of those things reduce the number of abortions. But I actually wanted to do something different. You see, but for Donald Trump winning in 2016, Roe v. Wade would still be intact. And in order to restore Roe, we're going to need a string of Democratic presidential and Senate victories for a lot of election cycles. But amazingly, most Democrats still haven't grasped one of the, made mis one of the main mistakes they made that, that allowed Trump to win in 2016. This is despite the fact that they already should have seen the impact of this mistake in 2000 when George W. Bush got elected. Now, I'm not talking about nominating someone because it's quote-unquote their turn and trying to clear the primary field for them to reduce competition, though that was a big mistake too. But what I'm talking about is squandering every opportunity to push ranked choice voting. Most listeners are probably asking at this point, what the hell is ranked choice voting? Now, the concept is complicated, but the relevant point here is very straightforward. First, we need to understand how the current system operates. Under our current election system, in most parts of the country, Maine, Alaska, and New York City being some notable exceptions, we have what is called plurality voting. Under the system of plurality voting, you are only allowed to select one candidate, and whichever candidate receives the most votes wins, period. Unless, of course, a presidential candidate wins the popular vote and not the electoral college. But that's a whole other problem that's been discussed far more than the problem I'm talking about here. At first glance, this plurality voting system might seem fair, but it isn't if we look closer. In practical terms, the system that we have now screws over third-party candidates and, more importantly, voters who are interested in voting third-party. Let's say that in, two, in 2020, Mike Bloomberg had been nominated against Trump. Let's say you're like me and will be unwilling to vote for Bloomberg or Trump and would rather vote third-party. Under the current system, anyone in a swing state like Georgia who voted for, say, Green Party nominee Howie Hawkins would have been essentially splitting the left-wing vote. 
thereby making it easier for Trump to win. This is called the spoiler effect. In much of Western Europe, parties are awarded seats in the legislature based on the percentage of votes that they receive in an election. Now, this approach has its problems, but it does mitigate the spoiler effect to some degree. If America used that kind of system, left-wingers could just pick between the Democrats, Greens, and any other left-wing parties on the ballot. And then if those parties get enough combined votes, they could control Congress through a coalition government. But ranked choice voting, which I'll refer to from here on as RCV, combines the best aspects of both the common Western European system and the American system without most of the worst problems of either. According to Ballotpedia, under RCV, quote, voters, ranked, voters rank candidates by preference on their ballots. If a candidate wins a majority of first preference votes, he or she is declared the winner. If no candidate wins a majority of first preference votes, the candidate with the fewest first preference votes is eliminated. First preference votes cast for the failed candidate are eliminated, lifting the second preference choices indicated on those ballots. A new tally is conducted to determine whether any candidate has won a majority of the adjusted votes. This process is repeated until a candidate wins an outright primary, end quote. This is dense, but here's the punchline. It eliminates the spoiler effect from voting third party that we talked about earlier. Under the Bloomberg versus Trump scenario I laid out, I and other voters like me could simply rank all the candidates on the ballot, rank Hawkins first, but rank Bloomberg above Trump. Then, if Bloomberg failed to win an outright majority in Georgia, he would start being assigned votes from people who had voted for him above Trump. Essentially, it would allow voters to vote third party without, quote-unquote, helping the candidate they dislike the most win. Would this have prevented Bush 43 and Trump from, from winning in 2000 and 2016? Well, if you listen to the Democrats who rage the most against third-party candidates and voters, the logical conclusion is it would have. The argument that Democrats make is that supporters of 2000 Green Party nominee Ralph Nader, Green Party nominee Jill Stein in 2016, and possibly supporters of 2016 Libertarian nominee Gary Johnson, cost Al Gore and Hillary Clinton their elections by splitting the left-wing vote. This ties in with rage against Bernie Sanders, despite the fact that he supported and campaigned for Clinton and the fact that most of his voters backed her in the general election also. Really can't make sense of that one. And this blame game is largely the reason why actress Susan Sarandon can't praise black female voters, appear in an ad, or speak up about a cause that's important to her without being personally insulted by a bunch of Democrats on Twitter. Some attacks on her accuse her of white privilege for voting third party, and it's worth unpacking that for a minute due to the sheer mental gymnastics involved in this claim. Rosario Dawson is another actress who also voted for Bernie in the 2016 primary and Stein in the 2016 general election, though her tweets in reference to having gone green seem to have themselves gone after she started dating Cory Booker. I like to joke that Dawson and I both went for Bernie in 2016 and Booker in 2020, but that unlike Dawson, I didn't date Booker. But here's the thing. 
if Sarandon's green vote was an exercise in white privilege, then the implication is that Dawson's green vote was as well. It would be quite a revelation to Dawson that she experiences white privilege since she is not, well, white. It would also be quite a revelation to fellow Stein 2016 voters, such as Cornel West, Rosa Clemente, and Marsha Coleman Adebayo, all of whom are black or Latina, as well as Colin Kaepernick, who is biracial and abstained from voting in the 2016 election. Also, even for white Stein supporters, there is another key problem with attributing their vote to white privilege. Let's say that you're trying to use your white privilege for your benefit, but you don't go for the actual white supremacist running on the Republican ticket. Instead, you go for Jill Stein, the only candidate supporting reparations. This seems like a really odd use of white privilege, doesn't it? Obviously, some Stein voters were and are racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, etc. But that's true of some voters for every candidate, including Clinton in 2016 and Biden in 2020. We shouldn't use this to automatically assume that the mere act of voting for Stein was an example of bigotry or privilege for all the people who voted for her. I agree with the concept that people are usually trying to convey when they talk about white privilege, even though I don't use the term myself because I think it is not the best way of describing what are very much real ways that systemic racism disadvantages minorities. But whatever you think of the term generally, it's being used in this case for something that it's really not applicable to. I will also note that the fact that some Democrats hate Sarandon for voting third party but admire Kaepernick is a double standard that probably has a lot to do with sexism not being taken as seriously as racism on the left. I respect both Sarandon and Kaepernick, and I take both sexism and racism very seriously. Call me crazy. There is also a certain irony in the fact that some of the same Clinton fans who reasonably criticized the quote-unquote Bernie bros for insulting female voters about the female candidate they voted for are perfectly fine with insulting a female voter about the female candidate she voted for. This dumpster fire reached peak absurdity when I saw a Democrat on Twitter who seemed to be male mocking Sarandon for, in his view, having ugly hair. When I pointed out how sexist this was coming across, Another Democrat, who seemed to be a woman and probably considered herself a feminist, started engaging in more mental gymnastics, trying to argue that it was somehow fine to attack a woman by mocking her appearance if the woman was a Green Party voter. Digressions aside, if we assume that these critics are correct, and third-party candidates and voters really did split the vote and allow Republicans to win the, the the, the 2000 and 2016 elections, then the logical conclusion is that RCV would have prevented all of this. Remember, the spoiler effect is eliminated by RCV, which allows leftists to vote their conscience and just place the Democratic candidate above the Republican candidate. You'd think after losing to Bush in 2000, Democrats would have made made it a major priority to push RCV nationwide. You'd especially think that after 2016, they would have made it a major priority. And you'd especially think now, 
with Donald Trump having turned a 5-4 pro-choice SCOTUS majority into a 6-3 pro-life majority, that this would be a major priority for Democrats. But you'd be wrong. Most Democratic politicians at the national level have done nothing to promote RCV, with Senator Michael Bennett and Representative Dean Phillips being some of the few exceptions. But the bill that Bennett, Phillips, and Independent Senator Angus King introduced to encourage RCV has no other Senate co-sponsors and only one other House co-sponsor, Jamie Raskin. Why aren't more Democrats making this a priority? Why hasn't Biden made it a priority at any point in his career? Why didn't Bill and Hillary Clinton? Why didn't Obama? Well, there's a chance that it might not completely benefit them. Certainly, it would benefit them to some degree. As I mentioned, if we'd had RCV in 2000 and 2016, Gore and Clinton might have won. The combined vote that Gore and Clinton received in Florida was over 50%. The same goes for New Hampshire, another close state that Bush won in 2000, though he was the last Republican presidential nominee to do so. Conventional wisdom would say that Nader voters probably preferred Gore to Bush on the whole. Democratic strategist Al Fromm actually pushed back against this notion that Nader helped Bush by analyzing polling data to argue that a slight majority of Nader voters actually preferred Bush to Gore. While I do question what percentage of these voters were named Christopher Hitchens, this is a valid point that Fromm brings up. A 2016 Vox article named Tara Volshan, uh, sorry, by Tara Volshan, made a somewhat similar argument that eliminating Stein's and Johnson's candidacies wouldn't have prevented Trump from winning. But Democrats who bash third-party candidates and voters can't have it both ways. Either third-party candidates and leftists who vote for them, sorry, either third-party candidates and leftists who vote for third-party candidates didn't split the vote enough to contribute to Bush and Trump winning, in which case browbeating them doesn't make sense, or vote splitting did play a role, in which case the lack of RCV is at fault since letting left-wing voters rank all the candidates would have allowed Gore and Hillary to win. Either way, guilt-tripping, insulting, and emotionally blackmailing third-party voters is unfair and unproductive, as is blaming third-party candidates, though I bash Nader for plenty of other stuff. I will note that while the Vox article is compelling— there is some evidence that RCV might have enabled Clinton to win in 2020, when a much smaller percent of Americans voted third party than in 2016, Trump received less than one percentage point more of the popular vote than he had previously, while Biden received nearly three percentage points more than Clinton had. Now, this suggests that 2016 third party voters went largely for Biden in 2020 and would have largely preferred Clinton to Trump if they had been ranking their choices. So that means if they'd been allowed to rank candidates in 2016, this might have propelled Clinton to victory. And of course, if Clinton had won, there's pretty much no way that Roe v. Wade would get overturned. Though we might not have had nine judges for the past six years, because if a Republican Senate had remained in power while Hillary was president, they might have just decided not to hold hearings. But that still makes it much less likely than Roe would have been reversed than the situation that we ended up with did. There are some trade-offs 
that probably frightened Democratic politicians out of supporting RCV. If RCV existed, there's a chance that third-party candidates might win a few more elections. After all, Maine and Vermont already have independent senators. Maybe a few blue states elect third-party senators and representatives. Maybe with a better shot at getting votes, some third-party candidates, or sorry, some third parties, really get their butts in gear, start attracting a lot more support, and actually become a real source of competition for the Democrats. All of a sudden, there are members of Congress and state governments who Democrats have to convince to caucus with them the way that Bernie Sanders and Angus King do now. All of a sudden, Democrats have to make a pitch for why these the, the kinds of voters that support these candidates should vote Democrat. And they have to make a pitch that doesn't involve, quote, if you don't, Republicans win, end quote. In essence, in 2016, Democrats decided they'd rather risk losing to Trump than to Stein. They got their wish, the rest of us got screwed, and we're going to get screwed over a lot more if RCV isn't enacted. Interestingly, rather than taking the easy route and blaming the politicians of both parties, many in the Green Party, including Stein and Hawkins, have opted to push ranked choice voting, which also has, as we discussed, the effect of preventing the infamous spoiler effect. Now, you might expect Democratic politicians not to do anything that could force them to compete with other left-wing parties, but it's still striking that more Democratic voters aren't angrily demanding that their politicians back RCV. Even now, I'm seeing a lot more Democrats rage at Stein, Stein voters, and even Bernie than they are raging at Democratic politicians who didn't push RCV. Some of this is the issue of soft targets. It's a lot easier to just insult Susan Sarandon every time she tweets, or blame Bernie when you already didn't like him, than it is to demand a politician that you actually like do better on something. I've often heard the argument that, yes, we should have RCV, but we don't have it right now, so everyone just has to vote Democrat until we can change it. I agree with this argument if it's simply an argument for voting Democrat in most cases. I voted for Clinton despite not being super enthused about her because I wanted to stop a conservative from getting elected. I did then and still do like Biden a lot better. But if, we, if we'd had RCV, I probably would have ranked Hawkins first, then definitely followed by Biden. I have a few Democrats I will not vote for under any circumstances, but a Democrat has to be pretty bad to get me to vote third party. I mean, I voted for Michelle Nunn and Jason Carter eight years ago for crying out loud. I don't demand a lot. But the problem is that the people who say, yeah, yeah, RCV would be good, but until we get it, vote blue no matter who, generally spend very little, if any, time actually promoting RCV. And they certainly show far more anger toward and spend far more time berating and insulting third-party candidates and voters, along with Bernie, than they do at Democratic politicians who haven't pushed RCV. Regarding Bernie, he hasn't co-sponsored the current RCV bill, but co-sponsored a similar proposal in the House back in 2001 and reiterated his support for RCV in 2020. What we see here is a classic case of crap rolling downhill. Instead of getting angry at the politicians who are in a position to actually change our voting system to make it more fair, they get mad at a relatively small group of voters for trying to navigate a broken election system. While there are some pretty big differences, 
And the latter example is obviously far more tinged with bigotry. The, quote, RCV would be good, but until we get it, vote blue no matter who, end quote, credo, is starting to sound reminiscent of right-wingers telling black people, quote, just comply with the cop and then sue later, end quote. This may sound like a weird analogy, but let me explain. Encouraging people whose rights are being violated by police to comply in the moment, then sue later to avoid getting injured or killed, is generally sound advice. Many black parents give their kids this advice. I've been at an ACLU event where this advice was given. Bernie Sanders was asked in 2019 what, as a parent, he'd advise a black child to do when they, get, when they got pulled over, and replied that he would encourage them to be polite to avoid getting killed, while also knowing and asserting their rights, and trying to make sure that the officer's body camera was on. But when, when right-wingers say stuff like this, they tend to spend very little time actually trying to reform our laws to make it easier for people, especially black people whose rights are violated, to successfully sue cops in court. And of course, this is something that our legal system makes it very hard for victims to do right now. I illustrated this in an episode where I talked about Larry Elder by showing how he had written, at the very least, dozens of tweets with the word comply, but none that I could find criticizing qualified immunity. Tell right-wingers a story of an innocent person getting racially profiled by police and becoming angry and uncooperative. And if the right-wingers don't outright defend racial profiling, many of them will still criticize the black person for not just complying and suing later. But few of them will do much of anything to actually change our laws so that victims of racial profiling can more easily collect damages in court. Again, Democrats bashing third-partiers are not the moral equivalents of the authoritarian bigots that I've criticized here. But what is reminiscent is the way in which many Democrats will offer perfunctory support for RCV, then go right back to repeatedly criticizing third-partiers, but not Democratic politicians who help stymie RCV. This doesn't apply to all Democrats who bash third-party candidates and voters. Some do make a lot of effort to support RCV. Many don't. Again, I guess sometimes a soft target is a more appealing target. A common argument is that national Democrats don't have control over RCV because that issue is decided at the state level, setting aside the fact that, for example, the Clintons were quite prominent in state politics for over a decade and, to my knowledge, did nothing to, did nothing to promote RCV then either. There are a variety of things national Democrats can do to push RCV at the state and local level. We see examples of this when we look at the Democratic politicians who actually have promoted RCV. Bennett's, King's, and Phillips' Voter Choice Act would provide federal grants to help pay costs for states and cities that enact RCV. In Massachusetts, Senators Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren and State Attorney General Martha Healey urged voters to support a 2020 ballot initiative that would have enacted RCV in their state. Biden should have publicly urged all his supporters in Massachusetts, who make up a heavy majority of the population, to vote for the initiative. Charlie Baker is easily one of the two least bad Republican governors in the country, and he's pretty good on issues like LGBT rights, race, abortion rights, and immigration, but he opposed RCV and the voters rejected it. So in Massachusetts, voters have to take some responsibility for the lack of RCV, though little, if any, blame 
should go to third-party voters in Massachusetts, given that most of them probably did vote for RCV while it was on the ballot. Another way that Democrats can push states to enact RCV would be if they were to announce that because Maine and Alaska are the only two states with RCV, they will be holding their first two caucuses in these states instead of Iowa and New Hampshire. That would be quite effective in getting more states to enact RCV. The right to host the first caucuses is very coveted. If the other 48 states saw Maine and Alaska getting this perk because they have RCV, many of them would likely race to adopt the policy as fast as possible in hopes of getting the Democrats to have the earliest caucuses there instead. It would also be good for Democrats and Republicans to have RCV for primaries so that primary voters can rank as many of the available candidates as they wish the way that they currently can in, for example, New York City. The stakes are usually less high here, but there are some major benefits. In 2016, there were probably moderate Republican primary voters who preferred Carly Fiorina to John Kasich, but regretted voting for her because it helped split the vote more ways and allow Trump to win the primary with a plurality. In 2020, there were probably moderate Democratic primary voters who wanted to vote for Klobuchar or Booker, but feared splitting the moderate vote and instead voted for Biden or Buttigieg to keep Warren or Bernie from winning. And there were probably hard left Democratic primary voters who wanted to vote for Warren, but feared splitting the hard left vote and instead voted for Bernie to try to keep Biden or Buttigieg from winning. RCV allows these voters to vote their consciences in the primaries as well. Is RCV perfect? Of course not. There are problems with it, as there are with any voting system. Frankly, the rise of Trump helped push me toward thinking that government in general represents a failed experiment. But look at the four years we had of Trump and the fallout we're still dealing with from it and will be dealing with for a long time. Can any Democrat look at this and honestly say that RCV would be worse? I want to address a couple of final points. I am generally not a big fan of when some far leftists focus most of their energy on criticizing Democrats rather than Republicans. The Democratic Party is much, much, much better than the Republican Party. Biden has been a great president. He's done some great stuff, and he'd be doing a lot more great stuff if congressional Republicans weren't blocking him. We are not dealing with two parties that are equally bad or close to equally bad. And as we've discussed, most of the relatively small number of politicians who advocate RCV are either Democrats or independents who caucus with Democrats. So with that in mind, listeners may wonder why I have spent most of this episode criticizing Democrats but not Republicans. Firstly, Democrats are now, and have been for at least the last 50 years, the party of voting rights. Republican attacks on voting rights are vile, but they have become expected since the Dixiecrats largely migrated to the GOP. But I want Democrats to live up to their principles. It means promoting legislation to fight Republican voter suppression, which Democrats are largely doing. But it also means pro- promoting RCV. Giving voters who are being unfairly denied the ballot by Republicans a chance to vote for Democrats is crucial, but so is giving them a chance to vote third party. Secondly, I am very concerned with how the lack of RCV 
is hurting Democrats' chances of winning, hurting our chances to promote vital policies like abortion rights, and contributing to bad infighting on the left. Out of a basic sense of fairness, I want to give socially liberal, fiscally conservative Republicans who want to defect from the party but can't stomach Democrats a chance to vote libertarian. But it doesn't bother me at all if votes get split between Republicans and libertarians and this helps Democrats win. Seeing a Republican rage against libertarian voters for making it easier for a Democrat to get elected makes me smile. Seeing a Democrat rage against green voters makes me sad. I also want to address the argument that the runoff system that states like Georgia use for statewide non-presidential races, i.e. Senate races, governor's races, etc., would be a good alternative to RCV. Under this system, which does not apply to presidential elections, when no candidate gets a majority of the vote, usually due to third-party voting and write-ins, there is a second election called a runoff sometime after the initial one, where voters pick between the two candidates who got the most votes in the initial race. While implementing this system for all types of elections nationwide would be a big improvement over the current system. It would be inferior to RCV, sometimes called instant runoff voting, for a couple of reasons. The big one is that there is a risk that a decent-sized number of voters lose focus and don't participate in the runoff since it requires them to vote a second time at a later date. In Georgia last year, massive voter turnout in the Senate runoffs propelled John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock to victory, but this was a historic moment that would likely be difficult to duplicate in every runoff election. A less significant but still notable problem is that some voters may feel less comfortable simply voting for a candidate they find odious than they would ranking them above a more odious candidate but below a candidate they actually like. This may seem like a distinction without a difference, but it may be an important one for some voters. It may seem like I'm fiddling while Rome burns by bringing up an arcane issue while abortion rights in much of the country are being dismantled and rights like gay marriage could be next. But if you care about abortion rights, if you care about marriage equality, you need to care about RCV because whether anybody likes it or doesn't like it, these issues are now connected. They have been for a while, but the longer we ignore them, the worse it's likely to get.